You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. To this year's Halloween crossover Christian Humanist podcast. We're the first episode in the network's Halloween crossover this year, so I'm happy to uh, ha- happy to welcome our listeners. I'm Michael Farmer. I'm your host for today, and I'm joined by Danny Anderson, whose name you're going to get used to hearing this week. Hey, Danny. <laughs> Hi, Michael. How are you? Yeah, I have to apologize if you get bored of me. Um, can I tell my story yet again that I've uh, I, I feel a sense of responsibility for the theme of this year's crossover because everybody knows that the subject is my favorite artist. And I felt like everyone chose that just to please me. <laughs> so I felt a responsibility to pitch in on almost every one of the episodes. And so, um, so you might get bored of me and I do apologize for that. We did have trouble filling the roster this year. And I don't know if, if, it seems to me that very few members of the Christian Feminist Podcast signed up. I know you're on their show later this week. Maybe maybe they talk about it there, but it, it does seem like John Carpenter, which is the theme, um, scared some scared some of our normal panelists off. Coyle's not even on an episode. Did you notice that? I did notice that. Yeah, I um I you know, and I think honestly, I think we'll talk about this today. Halloween is the subject of today's episode. It's a scary movie, and I think it has this reputation of being scarier than it actually is. Absolutely, it does. And I, I think that carries through John Carpenter's entire career. There are many John Carpenter movies that aren't even horror films in any way. Like, And, and so um, I feel like just the name – and he owns it. He calls himself – I mean, he his Twitter handle is Horror Master, and he's often called the Master of Horror. He just, I think, kind of um, almost parodies that aspect of himself. But his – actual career is much more diverse than that and so i i, I kind of wish i could have uh uh convinced people that big trouble in little china for example is <laughs> not scary at all <laughs> so. although every movie we're doing is a horror movie so i, I want to run through the roster since we're the first um since we're the first show this year so danny and i are talking about halloween um tomorrow on book of nature todd dan and danny are going to be talking about they live uh, Thursday on Sectarian Review, Danny, uh, Nathan Gilmore and Carter Smith Stepper are going to be talking about Prince of Darkness, a movie I don't know anything about. On Friday on Christian Feminist Podcast, Christina Bieber Lake, my wife Victoria Reynolds Farmer, and Danny are going to be talking about The Fog, which is the only other one of these I've seen. And then next Monday on Halloween itself, um, City of Man is going to finish things up with an episode with David Grubbs, Jordan Poss, and Carter Smith Stepper talking about the thing. Why are you not on that one, Danny? Um, because they already had three, um, <laughs> and I didn't want to. I felt conspicuous enough about being <laughs> almost all of them. So, well, I tell you, if you hadn't signed up for this one, it would just be me. <laughs> I don't know what I would have done. <laughs> Yeah, no. Um, and this one really does. I mean, it reads more, uh, it'll, you'll, a, a modern viewer will receive it more as a suspense in the Hitchcockian kind of tradition, right? Rather yes. than a slasher film as we kind of understand them. Because I, I had never seen this movie and I signed up for it um, because I knew that our show was going to be the first one. And I was like, well, probably we should pick his most famous movie. And so um, that's why, that's why I picked Halloween. I have been terrified of this movie for gosh, two decades ever since I became aware of it um, because I don't really like slasher movies and I really don't like home invasion movies um, except for Home Alone. (laughs) (laughs) And even that makes me a little nervous. Um, So I I actually really was dreading watching this. And then to make matters worse, I have a student who loves horror movies and I asked her how scary it was and she said it was super scary and super gory. Then I talked to you about it and it turns out she was thinking of the remake. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> the, the reboot, yeah. Because <laughs> she's a high schooler and has no sense of the difference between 1978 and 2018. <laughs> yeah, the reboot is much more of a modern horror film with a lot, lot more gore, and uh, and it's just much more identifiably a horror film. Um, right, although there's I, almost I, no gore in this. The body count is really incredibly low. Right, yeah, and it's mostly implied violence. I mean, you see a couple, I mean, you just see 
strangulations, right? Um, with one exception when Bob gets pinned to the wall, right? But but even that, it's physically impossible <laughs> what happens, first of all. <laughs> but secondly, even even with the, the knife pinning him to the wall, it, it somehow happens with no blood splatter at all, right? And so, yeah, there, it's a, it's even those kind of uber-violent moments are kind of muted. Yeah, and I mean, we watched it late at night not late at night, but late at night for us in that we went to bed right afterwards and I didn't have any trouble getting to sleep, which, which tells me it's not an incredibly disturbing movie because I do, um, my, my sleep is disturbed easily. And I am kind of a coward in terms of slasher movies. I watched it with my kids, um, this year for the first time. And, uh, so my oldest is in, she's a freshman in college now, but my youngest is 13 and, and has discovered horror herself. Uh, so she, she's enjoyed movies like scream and, and it and things like that. And stranger things. She's very into like 80s stuff, uh, which is pretty cool. But I watched tremors with her last night, by the way. And, um, but, uh, and so afterwards, like we talked about it and my youngest Nora, she said after a while, like, so it didn't really scare me, but thinking about it later, creeps me out. And, and I think yeah. that's a, that's the perfect way to talk about what I think John Carpenter even intended with this movie. Yeah. I, I would say there's a kind of creeping menace to this movie that that's very effective, but it's not. And there are a couple of like really good jump scares. Yeah. But it's not, um, it's not even as scary as scream, which oh. uh, is another movie I had avoided for decades and then watched. And I was like, okay, I you, like, it's not, not scary, but it's also not the sort of thing that's going to, keep me awake for weeks the way the shining did when i saw the shining you know a few years ago when we did the crossover on stephen king mm-hmm. i thought well maybe it's time for me to watch the shining again because i hadn't seen it since i was 12 or 13 and so i went and looked at a um at a recap of that movie that went through it frame by frame and looking at the pictures from the shining made my blood turn cold. So <laughs> I, I, I guess I guess because I saw that when I was when I was too young to handle it, I, I have always been afraid of these kind of I mean that's not a slasher movie I recognize, but I've always been afraid of these kind of this kind of movie. And now I see that I was really afraid of nothing with Halloween. It it's um it's it's just it's not that scary of a movie, which is not to say it's not a good movie. It's just um it's not what I expected it to be. Right. And some of it is the passage of time and kind of standards about what scares us today have changed. For example, nobody's afraid of Bela Lugosi now, right? Um, or uh, or Frankenstein doesn't scare people now as it did back then. So the same thing carries for a movie from 1978. The, the Whatever the stakes of what makes us afraid change over time. But it's also, I think, John Carpenter is very much a throwback kind of filmmaker, even from the beginning of his career. And he wasn't necessarily going for that, uh, in, in the first place. Yeah. When do you, um, when do you tell me more about that, Danny, since you are the expert and I'm, I'm but your humble student. Tonight, <laughs> um, what, what is he going for? And what, what is he, what is he throwing back to? Well, his, his, he's a film school dropout. Um, so he's, he went, I forget where he went to college, Western Kentucky or something like that. Um, and then he went to some films, I think you one of the film schools in California and dropped out. And, and I think there's just a cultural, um, un, like lack of fit with John Carpenter and Hollywood as a, as a, as a field of industry. And so for him, he thinks of film, not like the film school generation, right? The, the, French inspired auteur driven, um, film, filmmaking systems, um, uh, and that kind of art form. I think he probably appreciates that, but he is like still captivated by Howard Hawks and, and that sort of throwback to the 1950s, uh, form of filmmaking where you have an auteur, like someone like Howard Hawks is, uh, uh, someone with an artistic vision, uh, but it's contained within this kind of studio system. And so his form of independent filmmaking, doesn't look like Martin Scorsese or anybody like that um, from his, right. his general kind of uh, c- contemporaries. He's basically, I mean, jumped back a generation to this somewhat campy, but this kind of like classic American um, studio system style. And so Halloween really does look like a movie that Hitchcock would make. And, and so, um, and I think that I have a, it should come out on Halloween day, uh, but I've written something for pop culture and theology about John Carpenter and the origins of evil. And one thing I, I talk about in that uh, essay 
is his um, uh, uh, well, actually, I don't talk about this in the essay. I talked about this on the <laughs> Sorry, I got my my carpenter streams confused here. Uh, across the streams uh, on the They Live episode, I talk about this actually. There's a way in which you can compare him to Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, in, in the early days of Al- Al- from the first half of Alfred Hitchcock's career, he was not taken seriously as like an artist mm-hmm. by like critics, right? He was something like the Lodger, right? Right, it has something in common with Halloween. Yeah, exactly. He's a popular filmmaker, um, and it takes someone like it takes Francois Truffaut to actually identify him as an artist in his own right, just doing something in a way that critics didn't understand as auteurism, right? And so John Carpenter is very much that same kind of filmmaker, and 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 I think it really his critical reception in France, uh, for example, is much different than it was uh, throughout his career in, the, in America for very similar reasons. He is like doing something within a kind of uh, paradigm that doesn't quite match contemporary critical ideas of what film art is. And so Halloween really does feel more like um, a throwback to something that Alfred Hitchcock would make. And in fact, there's many references to Psycho in the movie. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Loomis is named after one of the characters from Psycho, right? Uh, the casting of Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, the daughter of Janet Lee, the star of Psycho. There's many, many allusions to Psycho. And so I think that that connection is very strong. Yeah, although it has certain things in common with, with Hitchcock, but also it feels very much to me like one of those 1970s New Hollywood movies. Am I way off on that? I mean, like, you're right that he doesn't do this exactly the way that Scorsese would do it, but it feels so much more street level than anything Hitchcock did after he left Britain. I mean, maybe something like The Lodger, where where Hitchcock really is um, kind of stymied by the technological limitations that he's working hmm. with. But I, I think of even a movie like Psycho is kind of glossy compared to Halloween. Halloween feels very much like a guerrilla film project. Uh, and it was. It was a low-budget independent film up until Blair Witch Project came out, I think. I think that's right. Uh, it was the most successful independent film of all time. Um, it, it's, uh, it was made on a very shoestring budget. And so, yeah, you've got a lot of creative use of handheld uh, camera, for example, there's a lot of like on location shooting and, and that sort of thing. And so it does have this kind of like, um, very much 1970s style of, uh, of independent filmmaking. I think you're definitely right. I mean, it looks like something that would play in a drive-in theater of the time, right? Yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, I guess I never went to a drive-in movie in the seventies cause I wasn't alive. <laughs> <laughs> you've seen movies that you know you could you could imagine what would fit in there though like um you know those like exploitation movies right and so yeah it definitely has that kind of uh feel and yet it feels richer than that too i think um carpenter has a a visual style and a patience i think um, mm-hmm. or, um that, that's the way it really felt 70s to me is how long some of these shots are yeah and how, yeah. how nothing happens it almost it almost feels like an art movie yeah I, I think it definitely does, right? And, and I think that he has this way of um, using establishing shots, especially very effectively, um, and and sort of empty space in 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 the frame. Um, he knows how to make that kind of an eerie thing. I think I also brought this up on one of the episodes I was on. Uh, I think this might have been the They Live episode, but there's a really terrific uh, book about horror films that I use when I teach my horror film class called the weird and the eerie by Mark Fisher. And I do write about this in the essay. Uh, the, um, there's a Fisher basically takes Freud's concept of the uncanny and sort of zooms in on it and distinct, this distinguishes the weird from the eerie. And so the weird is very Lovecraftian ideas of something from another realm or dimension that is imposed on ours. And so it just doesn't belong, right? That, that makes something weird. So HP Lovecraft is, you know, the, preeminent example of that. Um, and Carpenter does really love H.P. Lovecraft. Um, but then the eerie is what Fisher calls, it's the, the apps, the failure of absence or the failure of presence. So if you're in a, uh, an empty hospital or an empty mall, that's, that's eerie, right? Because there should be something there that isn't, 
or if you're in a hallway and there's a doll standing at the end of the hallway uh, by itself that, that shouldn't be there. That's also eerie. This movie really makes use of the eerie. Like yeah. Michael Myers is an eerie presence. Um, he's not doing anything. His just presence is disturbing to the viewer. Uh, we see him in places that other characters don't, but they do see him behind bushes and that sort of thing and has this very, very eerie effect. Right. Yeah. And it, it, it gives him the, the kind of supernatural, um, the supernatural feel that he, he, that sets him apart from just a normal like home invasion human killer right yeah yeah i i was um i don't know how many people are going to listen to all these episodes you'll hear me say this again (laughs) but i i was lucky enough this last summer john carpenter came to steel city con which is pittsburgh's version of comic con and i bought the vip pass and i got my picture with him and got to talk to him for a minute and all that kind of thing but um during his panel his q a he very explicitly talks about michael myers as not a human being, but like a, a kind of elemental kind of thing. He's mm-hmm. just sort of an embodiment of evil. And so th- there's something that transcends um, his physical body, which explains the ending of the movie pretty well, actually. But, um, um, which, but al- which also really sets him apart from Psycho, right? Because Psycho yeah. goes out of its way infamously to explain it using what was then cutting edge psychiatry. Yeah, and they make the psychiatry very explicit at the end uh, with the speech at the end of the movie, right? Uh, which I actually still appreciate. I still like that that little explainer speech. But um, but here uh, instead you have a psychiatrist who's like, oh, yeah, he's not human. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we should just kill him. He's the devil. He's black eye. He's evil, right? Yeah, um, exactly, right? It's a, it's a total inversion of that. You're right. That's a really good point. Um, and and also it's like there's a, uh, a way in which Rob Zombie's reboot of this a remake of it went back to psycho it, it gave michael myers a psychological backstory and, and it, it i think it i think john carpenter implied that he wasn't a fan of that somebody asked him what he thought of it and he just answered with next question uh and so i, I assume that means he didn't like it uh, but uh but he uh, uh like what rob zombie does by doing that is to throw it back to more the psycho model whereas i think john carpenter was trying to do something a little bit um metaphysical yeah i, I should mention i have not seen either of the remakes or any of the sequels and i i have some vague sense of what goes on in them but yeah. I um I don't know the actual movie, so I'm uh, I'm at a loss there. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, no problem. We don't need to go into it. But yeah, I've heard they're not very good, right? And I know that the the David Gordon Green 2018 Halloween like essentially decanonizes everything but the first movie. That is right. Um, the the current trilogy that's concluding as we speak with Halloween ends, which is I haven't seen yet. I'd hope to see it this week, um, but I, I haven't gotten a chance to see it yet, so I can't speak to that last movie. But he it basically creates a trilogy, pretending that it we only had how this for this movie Halloween. Um, it eliminates Halloween two on, um, and it creates its own um, universe, its own kind of quadrilogy um, with the first movie. I, and I also I also know that the the original plan for the sequels was to have nothing to do with Michael Myers at all, right? That they they were it was supposed to be an anthology, right? Film which, series, which probably would have been a better idea. Which I think, yeah, they did with Halloween three. I mean, Halloween three has nothing to do with Michael Myers, and it's actually a really interesting movie about these uh, this corporation that produces these. Um, uh, cursed masks that uh, kill people who wear them. It's a really, really trippy and interesting movie, but freaked people out because it had nothing to do with Michael Myers. And so, um, but that was more along the lines of what um, he wanted to do. The original title of this movie was The Babysitter, Babysitter Murders, I think. And so, yeah, you can imagine it be called Halloween, The Babysitter Murders, Murders, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, like just completely different anthologies. Um, which I think Carpenter has been able to kind of realize in some of his comic book work. He actually um, writes and, and um, produces a lot of comic books. And, oh, I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, and so I think a lot of these, a lot of his comic book work are more like anthology-based um, things. He's also very influenced by the old EC comics, like Vault of Horror and Crypt of Terror or whatever those things were called, you know, uh, from the 50s. And so Halloween and especially the fog really fit into that kind of, um, that kind of model too. Interesting. 
Well, we should uh, we should talk about some of the the specifics of this movie. I, I think the the first thing that strikes most people is the, the the very long opening shot that's the the point of view shot um, where you are Michael Myers killing his promiscuous sister, and then only after that do you realize, oh gosh, Michael Myers is a six year old boy, <laughs> not a grown man, which is how it feels at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, it's a a really great piece of filmmaking, isn't it? Uh, from from a 1970s perspective, it, it's innovative. It's uh, it makes use of. I was always kind of put off by the fact that this child um, is in the room with a naked lady <laughs> for the filming of that, <laughs> but it actually isn't the child in that exact moment. That's actually for the producer Deborah Hill. Um, that's her. That's her hand. <laughs> they had the child out of the room with the naked lady, uh, right. so, <laughs> which is which is nice to hear. Actually, there, so. there is some 1970s style uh, pointless nudity in this movie. That's for sure. Yeah, there it, it happens, and it, it. I mean, it establishes this movie. I mean, I would have. It'd been nice to have Victoria on this episode. She, she talked about coming on it. She she said, "Do you want me to come on?" Because she knew there were only two of us, and, it, and she watched this movie with me. But yeah. she decided ultimately not to. She okay. told me that she had enough of you. <laughs> well, that, that's understandable and totally believable, um, and, and and laudable on her part, actually. So, um, but no, um, the this movie is actually written quite a lot about in terms of like feminism and film. And so this is where you sort of get the, the genesis of this trope about, um, sex and death and, and, um, being punished for, uh, for promiscuity and drinking and that kind of thing. And so, yeah, the, there, it's not like, uh, wildly explicit or anything, but, um, but there are some sort of, you would call gratuitous, uh, nude scenes to establish the kind of, I don't know the punishment, uh, the kind of the penal aspect of the P N A L aspect of this uh, of these deaths. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, yeah, like, like you say, it's one of the most famous parts of the movie, and 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 Scream plays off of that a lot, right? Yeah. What was interesting to me about the fog, which I know we're not talking about, but which I watched because Victoria was talking about it, uh, is they they go out of their way so quickly in that movie to subvert. Uh, to subvert that morality part right that that jamie lee curtis has sex with someone she just meets doesn't even know his name and nothing happens to her yeah 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 she survives yeah i think yeah carpenter had already kind of i I don't know that he like intended to have a statement about that kind of thing that was sort of read into it by critics um in, in with the making of halloween so you can almost see him pushing back against it in the fog uh which is made like two or three years later um yeah he's like all right i don't mean to take us down that road <laughs> so yeah he, he was sort of almost apologizing for it um and incidentally um for listeners who want to listen to the, the that fog episode i have a kind of fan theory the way i like to pair up um Halloween in the fog. So you can listen to me explain that if you like. I'm excited to hear that. I'm (laughs) editing that episode, but haven't done it yet. Um, yeah. Would the, would the movie be better without that, without that morality tale aspect? Cause you, it's, it seems to me that you have two semi-compatible, um, views of this going on at the same time, right? That, that on the one hand, these girls are being punished for being promiscuous and the boy too, to be fair. These teenagers are being punished for being promiscuous and Laurie gets to survive because she, you know, is a good girl. But then on the other hand, you have this notion that Michael is just an inhuman like personification of evil. And I know that the original draft of the movie had a bunch of stuff about Celtic Samhain mythology and all this other stuff that's not about punishing the wicked, but is is instead just about this like unstoppable evil force. I, I, I wonder if the movie, if the, the final girl stuff and the, the morality tale aspects of this are kind of a distraction from that, from that other story that Carpenter's telling. There's certainly a paradox there. You're right. There, there's this way in which movies like this and Halloween, it's not the first movie in this genre. I mean, you can go back to like black Christmas or something that is, um, does similar things that this movie does. Right. And so, um, but it does establish this somewhat conservative uh, ideology about you know morality, and, and and so there is a way in which that that that's a logic, right? Uh, there, there's a reason then that the people who die die, and so the what's I think Carpenter's real intent though is to have him as this kind of agent of chaos, just chaotic evil that um, is 
there's no rhyme or reason. So there's an interesting paradox you're there. You're right. Yeah, I um, may, maybe it's just because Scream so thoroughly deconstructed the the morality tale. Um, and even though I never saw Scream in the 90s, I was well aware of of the way it, it took on that particular trope that maybe it's because it, that 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 later movie did that, that I find the the other version of the story so much more interesting. The just that he he is evil and there's no way to stop him. There, there's it's almost like um, like in a Coen Brothers movie or something like that. Right. It's yeah. almost Anton Shiger or. Um, or one of the other uh, madman months or, or one of the other just like unstoppable forces of evil who stalk their way through the Cohen universe. Yeah. Um, Randall Tex Cobb's character in raising Arizona. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Th- that's, I think that's a really good point. I, I think that's a great an- analogy. Michael Myers really is the template for that kind of figure that you see increasingly um, throughout the eighties and nineties and, and even to today. Um, absolutely. This kind of like um, it, it it's without you know rationalism there, there's just a i mean it, it's this is the weird right this is um um cthulhu something from another dimension that has no concern for us at all um yeah and, and, and thus there's no way to reason with him there's yeah. like the idea that he would be in a insane asylum is fascinating because what sort of conversation are you going to be able to have with this entity you know what I mean? Maybe yeah. it was a six-year-old boy at one point, but really what it is is a, an elemental force, to use the word you used yeah. uh, earlier in the episode. Yeah, and and I think the mask makes that very, uh, like, it, it plays on that very well, too. It emphasizes that aspect of his character. It is ostensibly human, and it's very famously a William Shatner mask from Star Trek that they right. um, died. <laughs> and um, I, originally, so... At a previous Steel City Con, I met Nick Castle, who played Michael Myers in this movie and also directed The Last Starfighter, uh, which is an awesome movie, by the way. Um, but he um, he was saying in his Q&A that um, the the mask was actually supposed to be a clown or something like that, and it just wasn't working. And so there was a uh, – uh, someone just went out. <laughs> they had no budget for this, so they just went out and found something and, and messed around with it, and they, they liked the effect that it gave. Um, but – the the idea there is, I mean, it's vaguely human looking. This is why it's such a brilliant accident. It's vaguely, it looks ostensibly like a human, but it's bled of all human features and characteristics, right? Right, because they don't just paint it white. They also mess around with the eye holes so they're yeah. not quite right. And yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's and the hair just like is a, it's like a simulacrum of human hair, right? And and, and so, yeah, simulacrum in general of, of a human being. And so, uh, yeah, it's sort of like a force that just sort of masquerades as a human. Um, and so, yeah. And so I think yeah, that... The, the movie would be much less effective if he were wearing a clown mask. Oh, my gosh, totally. I We... It would not be the institution that it is today. Uh, that is absolutely true. Um, I totally agree with that. I mean, I guess they got away with it in It. Um. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I think it's a different, I mean, I guess Stephen King is sort of doing a similar thing with, with Pennywise. And, right, right, because he's a, he's a being from another dimension, too, from my understanding. I've not seen that movie or read that book. Yeah, yeah, I'm actually in the middle of listening to the audiobook version of it right now, and it's like 40 hours long or something like that. It's taking me forever. But um, and incidentally, just as a, a, a pitch, that's an excellent audiobook. Stephen Weber, um, the actor from Wings, you might recognize him. It's crazy. Um, um, he does an amazing job um, narrating that book. It, it's an incredible experience listening to him read it to you. So um, off topic, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, you're right. And I think um, it it is doing something somewhat different though. Um, and so the clown is sort of like a, by the time it is being written, maybe because of John Wayne Gacy, maybe because of other movies that have come in the wake since then, um, clowns have become like a scary thing in and of themselves, a symbol of some sort, right? Um, There's too much substance there to do the thing that Michael Myers is trying to do because you need to look into his eyes and see nothing, right? Like he needs to be, it's it's really important that the mask is white. It's it's the whiteness of the whale. It's the whiteness of negation. Mm. Uh, that's a great analogy for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really great, I mean, this is one of the brilliant possibilities that independent filmmaking offers is improvisational kinds of mm-hmm. like decisions like that, that actually make the work. Right. Um, this and, is something um, 
Josh and I talk about a lot on Before They Were Live, the notion that limits to your art, even artificial limits that you set on yourself, are usually pretty productive. Yeah. Yeah. Hitchcock's work is much more interesting when he didn't have nudity and swear words to, to work with. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, although I like those later movies too, but yeah. Frenzy's, um, Frenzy's not a bad movie. I like Frenzy. <laughs> That's my favorite of all the late ones. Yeah. <laughs> Frenzy's really cool. Um, but yeah, he's almost like parodying his own oeuvre in that, <laughs> in that, uh, uh, in that, that movie. But, um, but the going back to Michael Myers and an improvisational moment and his sort of, alienness of it the the moment where he pins bob to the closet wall or the, the kitchen wall um and and he stands back and just sort of like admires his work with the the he, he, he like tilts his head like a the, dog the subtle head tilting right um that's an amazing shot it is and that nick castle said um that that was totally john carpenter in the moment he had him just like you can't hear it on screen but what on the set nick castle has or john carpenter does him just to back up move your head to the left, move your head to the right. It just sort of walked him through the entire thing. It was a, a thing that John Carpenter was working with like in the moment. And it, and it is one of the most iconic moments in the history of horror cinema. Right. I mean, and, and so it's, it's a definitely a, a, a chilling um, and very effective moment that gets at this kind of like inhumanness of Michael Myers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that that's about the moment when you when you start to think, oh, he's not. This this is not just a mental patient, you know. Th- right. This is this is not just a this is not just a person who's gone crazy because he watched his sister having sex, right? Or whatever, whatever, <laughs> whatever you might be tempted to say drove six year old Michael Myers crazy. Yeah, it is true. I mean, that is in there though, like the six year old Michael Myers. The if you look at the, I mean, I I teach this movie, so I. I've watched this movie many times. Um, but, and so I, I've looked at that opening sequence several times and incidentally, um, don't calculate the amount of time the boyfriend and his sister are upstairs. Yeah, It doesn't take him long. <laughs> does it? It's, uh, it's a little embarrassing for that guy. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but the, uh, uh, but the moment when he first walks into the bedroom after when she's combing her hair, he does like look at the disheveled bed. Right. So that does seem to have something to do like his like rage at that act, right. Has something to do with a motivation you would think at that moment. But then the way Michael Myers develops as a character, like motivation just seems to go out the window. Right. Right. He doesn't, he doesn't seem aware of anything. Yeah. Yeah. I did find myself wondering why they gave him access to a workout room at the, insane asylum <laughs> you know what i mean because he's pretty cut it, it just seems to me that they'd be better off keeping him weak it seems like a bad yeah you think loomis would stepped in there right and uh since like, he was well, why are they letting him lift so many weights <laughs> <laughs> true true and then the the new trilogy i mean his strength is just like ridiculously superhuman and he's like 65 years old or something right in that movie so um yeah no it's it's interesting and uh, i mean while we're talking well i want to talk about dr loomis um in a minute but i guess just to be more like in the moment here um about motivations like what are your thoughts on the the choice of Lori. There's much in her classroom about fate. There's that that speech about fate that right, clearly is part of the there. And sees him and the the yeah. English teacher is talking about fate. Yeah, yeah. It's it's but I mean it's like this accident of the universe that she happens to be delivering a key for her father to that house, and that seems to be why he chooses her to stalk right. And so the death of the friends are just kind of incidental, whether they're having sex or not. Um, he's just like going to go after everybody in her orbit right and so uh, what do you what do what did you think about that i'm just curious it seemed it seemed like a little scene dressing more than more than anything that had like an actual philosophical thought behind it to me i mean it it works with the movie like that that scene is is creepy um in the way it's supposed to be creepy i'm not sure that i saw a whole lot of i i wouldn't say that the movie has a well-developed concept of fatalism oh okay that's interesting no no i'm i'm interested in in uh, so like not in like in a kind of naturalist sort of sense is that what you mean well i mean i think i think he's hmm. 
I yeah, I, I suppose I do. I, I, I suppose I think it's there as a kind of atmosphere, the way a lot of this stuff, a lot of the stuff in the movie is there as a kind of atmosphere. Mm, okay, that's interesting. Well, I was just, I mean, th- that's one of the things that's like, I think, tragic about Laurie Strode uh, as a character is that her dad just happened to be the the real estate agent that happened to be showing the house at the moment that Michael Myers happened to escape. Right. And so, uh, and so when she shows up with the key in the doormat, that is sort of like enough of a connection. That's the, that's the victims that he chooses because he just has this rage that we can't define. And, and I, I don't know. And so I, I, I did think it was a fairly effective, and I thought it was purposeful given the context of the English teacher's lesson about fate right. being kind of a, a, a natural force of the universe, not necessarily a uh, um, like uh, there's like two options that she talks about there, but, but there, there's the one philosopher. And I, from what I've understood, those are just completely made up figures that they're talking about. That's not real authors. Um, and so, um, but yeah, I thought that that was actually pretty, I thought it was pretty effective. Um, does it, kind does of it, do, do the sequels play with that, Danny? Since I assume Michael Myers just keeps coming after Laurie. So in Halloween 2, which Mike, which John Carpenter didn't want to make, right? That wasn't his idea, but it made so much money. And, and Carpenter's very frank about, like, he doesn't really care. Like, he, as long as he's getting paid, he doesn't care what anybody does sure. with, with, with the franchise at this point. He's kind of made his peace with it. Um, it wasn't his idea, but he's happy to pe- cash the paychecks, basically, is what he said, uh, which is kind of charming <laughs> in a lot of ways, actually. But he was very charming old grump, actually. Um, but he... Um, um, he didn't want to make Halloween two, so they made Halloween two, and in the course of in the plot of that movie, there's some sort of reveal that um, Lori is actually Michael's sister, uh, and her the the Myers parents got killed somehow after Michael was gone, and uh, she was adopted by the Strodes, and then Michael knew her, and uh, and so that that's why he chose her. Oh, that's and, lame and in, as all hell. It's it's totally lame, right? And and it actually in the David Gordon Green reboot, or they call it a requel. Um, this uh, it's a sequel slash reboot. Um, Halloween two twenty eighteen, the. Lori's granddaughter actually someone says I heard they were brother and sister she goes no that's just something somebody made up to make them feel better right and and that's really it it's applying a kind of logic so that we could understand the motivation and right it, but if, it, if if the movie is about fate there is no logic to it it's just like what happens yes exactly exactly and and I find that to be much more kind of compelling and I you know there's I think John Carpenter would hate this and I kind of hate it on some level too, but I, we are academics. Uh, and so there are academic ways of analyzing films like this too. Um, and the, the key, the, the object of a key has very traditionally been used as a kind of phallic symbol. If you look at the old 1942, um, cat people, uh, the key is very explicitly, um, linked to uh, a phallic symbol. And, and so the, I, when I teach this class, I, I say, I don't think John Carpenter thought of this and I don't think he would even tolerate this kind of analysis really on some level. But if you do think of it as a kind of like um, passing the, the phallic power back and forth, it does kind of fit with the various attacks that Laurie um, brings on Michael at the end. There's this sort of back and forth as to who has the knife and who has the coat hanger and who right. has the... she penetrates him and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. So there's, there's a way to do that. And I, I don't, I don't hate that kind of reading. I think it helps students do some analytical work, but I think it's, if you, I wouldn't limit myself to reading a movie like that. You know, it, it is a bit reductive, right? At this point, these old kind of Freudian um, readings, but it is definitely there. Uh, and, and I think that that, if you don't want to go the fate route, there's a symbolic uh, nature about phallic power that you could get into there if you want, which I don't want to. But, but if yeah, you want yeah, to, I, I could talk to you about it. So. Save it for the Christian feminist podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. But it, it helped me when I'm teaching the horror film class. I like to establish a conversation that goes back and forth. And given the cat people very explicitly makes that a phallic symbol, um, it was a handy thing to talk about when we talked about Halloween later on in the semester, it could, you know, a little call back to something earlier. Cat people's a crazy, crazy movie. I've, I've never is. seen the the remake. I've only seen the, the 1940s one, but that's a, that's an amazing movie. It, it is really great. I, I love that movie. And, uh, and it is very, uh, very, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. 
And that's the kind of movie that John Carpenter would have had in his head, though. Yeah, I, I suppose I could see that, although it's got that like expressionistic quality that that this movie doesn't really have. It definitely has like set designs and, and lighting uh, like features like lighting is extremely, extremely detailed in that movie. Right. right. But they didn't uh, have the money to do that for Halloween. I get that. And you see him do some of that with the fog. Right. So it's mm-hmm. not like he's incapable of, of um, that kind of artistry. It was just wasn't the right fit for this movie both monetarily and for what they were kind of going for with the fog, they were going for this kind of throwback movie. And so there's a lot with the lighthouse that they're doing interesting lighting and that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's true. Yeah. But I mean, I, th- I think the low budget quality of this movie really works for it. I, mm-hmm. I, I think the kind of, the kind of stripped backness of it, no, no pun intended, um, makes it eerier to use the term used earlier. It makes it, um, it feels like there's something important missing uh, that that I think makes the overall effect of the movie more powerful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, right? Yeah, um, and and it it it's a real effective use of tension. I mean, later on, the Blair Witch Project does a simpler. We never see the witch, right? <laughs> it's all just sort of by implication and in eeriness, right? Uh, and so there there's a way in which there have been films that I, I not to say I love that movie or anything i've, the not, found I've footage, not seen it yeah the found footage thing just isn't my thing but um but I, you know i can appreciate it to a degree but um but the um but the, the idea that the the explosion isn't as scary as the anticipation of the explosion right and this movie is all about anticipation and ramping up tension um it, starting really with the amazing soundtrack that that Carpenter like composes for this. Yeah, I wanted to I wanted to make sure we talked about that soundtrack, which as you as you note, he does himself. It's it's a, a piano theme, a very strange piano theme. It's in a weird time signature, so it feels off kilter. Yeah. Yeah, he said it was a like a five four, I think, I think is what he said. Yeah, it's it's five four. Okay. In uh yeah, in his Q and A he talked about his his father his father might have been a musician, a music professor, if I think, if I remember right, but um, had uh, instilled in him a love of um, of um, that kind of like that jazz music, that Dave Brubeck stuff, right? And um, and and so I think that that's right, what he had. There's not much jazzy about the Halloween theme. <laughs> no, nor in the rest of uh, Carpenter's soundtrack or his his music work, and you really can't. I draw a hard line between his work as a musician and his work as a filmmaker. Right. right. A, he does the themes for most of his. And, and he's been, he goes on tour with a band um, and he actually releases albums. There's a, a series of three albums that he's got called lost themes. One just came out recently actually. And they're very much, they sound like movie soundtracks, but um, there's a very recognizable style in John, Mark, John Carpenter's like musical style. Uh, and you can see it in Halloween. I guess I would like to, you're, since you're the musician guy, uh, like the music guy. Um, I, one thing, so for me, his music works with the whole idea of, of the weird, right? Yeah, there's, yeah. There's like and that's something... why it's so important that it's that weird four, five four. Yeah, but, but like there's you, some... as as a pop music listener, you are expecting four four one yeah. two three four one two three four, or maybe you're expecting three four one two three one two three, and what you're getting instead is this missing beat or extra beat, and it throws you off, right? It feels yeah. like you're falling down a flight of stairs. Yeah, exactly, right. Um, and, and there's also this like pulsating nature to it mm-hmm. that that it just gives the the sense of knocking right and, and and like like something from the outside is banging to get in kind or, of or or your heartbeat of course yeah exactly or banging to get out in that case right yeah right, right. Um, yeah and so I I think that that's really interesting but I also think that the and this is the way I mean I don't have the language to talk about music so this is why I would love you to you know, fill it in for me, but it's almost like there's a melody, but the melody is like in service of a rhythm. Like the melody disappears into the rhythm. Am I right about that? I think that's right. Yeah. It is, it is a much more rhythmically driven piece than melodically driven. And that, that does set it apart from a lot of film scores um, with, with some notable exceptions, including Bernard Ehrman's famous psycho score, right? Right. Like the, the part from psycho, everybody remembers is that same i mean it's a different instrument it doesn't sound the same but it's still that pulsing and in in some ways the the halloween score is more subtle than that yeah 
but it, I think it's I think it's accomplishing um, something something kind of similar rhythmically. Yeah, and it's something I mean, there's something uh, very I said this about They Live too. There's something very punk rock about John Carpenter's cinema. Um, it's very DIY, oh, yeah, yeah, right? And this is a very kind of DIY thing. Like John, I mean, he's a limited musician, right? He's not gonna he's not uh, Rachmaninoff on on the keys, right? So like he he can do something that he can do and he does it very effectively. Right. And, and, and oh, it's, it, I mean, it's one of the best, um, the best movie themes ever. Yeah. 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 And definitely one of the most recognizable for sure. Um, and one thing that, that Fisher says in the weird and the eerie, one of the objects he looks at is the, there's some ambient music by Brian Eno that he, he looks at and really ambient music in general is kind of eerie because it, it lacks, like there's a missing element to it, right? There's a, that melody is missing. It's just background noise. It's so it's like an empty landscape. Um, and, and this sort of has that kind of, uh, because there is a melody there, but it's like drained of, of its melodic function. And it's just put in service of the, of the rhythm. It is almost like a landscape that is devoid of a, of an object kind of. Mm-hmm. I like that. That's a, that's a, that's a really interesting way to talk about it. Yeah, and, and and all of his soundtracks work that way, um, and I, I just think that his uh, his music is really fun to listen to. I'll put, I mean, it's all ambient and or it's all like you know instrumental, and uh, it, I'll just put it on and drive. It's it's really kind of it, the pulsating. It's great driving music because of the pulsating nature of it. And, yeah, uh, I would I would actually say it is much more insistent on itself than a lot of like Eno esque yeah. uh, ambient music. It, it it actually has more obviously going on. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's not so much like what Eric Satie called furniture music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's it's great. And it works really well in this movie. And all of his soundtracks are really interesting. You know, I noticed in when I went to see The Thing the other day in um, in Johnstown, the, um, the that soundtrack is done by um, Ennio Morricone. Um, and so it's like one of his last, I think, works, actually. And um it's uh, but when you listen to the soundtrack to the thing, it, I mean, you would think it was a John Carpenter soundtrack. It was like Morricone was like imitating John Carpenter and composing the soundtrack to the thing. I, that's that to me was a remarkable <laughs> kind of moment in, in a lot of ways. How interesting! I didn't yeah. know Morricone did that soundtrack. I've not seen the thing. Um, I think we were talking about this before the uh, episode started. That I really want to watch the thing, but Victoria won't watch it with me. It, it is definitely like registers more as a horror film like um it, and it goes into body horror and and so it's it's gruesome in ways that this movie is not um and and yeah it, it attaches uh gore and violence to the suspense and, and so this is uh, this is mostly suspense without the most of the gore and violence so i tend not to be afraid of the supernatural horror stuff i tend to mostly be afraid of like there is a madman who is killing people Ah, okay. Interesting. Yeah, I would like to get your thoughts on the thing then. It, it is very interesting. And I think there's an interesting, um, I think there are ways to, I, I think there's a worldview in in my, in uh, John Carpenter's cinema in general. And I try to get at that in the piece I wrote, but, um, but I do think that there's corollary uh, ideas about evil that you can see in this movie and in the thing. And incidentally, I mean, there's a, a nod to the original thing in this movie. Right. Yeah. The kids are watching it. Like, so there's long clips of the Howard Hawks thing. Yeah. In this movie. Yeah. And so like five years later, four years later, I think, um, you know, Carpenter's remake of it comes out. And so he's already obviously paying homage to that movie. And, and I don't, I, I don't want to talk about my piece too much, but this is, uh, it's fresh in my mind. There's two movies that they're watching. There's the thing, thing from another world is the Howard Hawks movie where the evil comes literally from another world. Right. And that's in the title. Right. Um, and then the other one is forbidden planet. Um, have you ever seen that movie? Oh yes. Um, forbidden planets an interesting because like the monsters it's a, a adaptation of the tempest. It is. Yes, exactly. Right. And, and the monsters are like, um, expressions of a person's id. So the, the evil sort of the monsters come out of the person that they're attacking kind of. Right. And so, yeah. um, uh, it's an interesting, there's like a paradox, um, built into those two ideas of the origin of evil. And that's, that's kind of what I, I was interested in that piece, but I think it's a really interesting, um, um, uh, dichotomy to put in, in the middle of this movie when thinking about Michael Myers. 
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we, what's your what's your theory of? I don't want you to spoil your article, but what is your your kind of overarching theory of Carpenter's view of evil? I I, I at some point I wrote myself to a claim at the end of that that Isn't that it how is, it works. <laughs> it, it is that it is almost a variation of Pelagianism. Um, I, I think that there is a rejection of of um, original sin like sin originating out of human beings. Um, evil is almost always something that comes from somewhere else and basically consumes a human host. I mean, that this is what the thing is about, right? His carpenter's version of the thing and it replaces them with, with and so the evil monsters in the thing are not the humans anymore, right? They were humans who were corrupted by something from outside of them. Um, and, uh, and I think that, that Michael Myers, that's a way to understand young Michael somehow, some way that, and we'll never know, uh, this little boy was corrupted by something alien, uh, to human beings and, and was replaced by the shape. That's the, 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 that's the way that, um, Nick Castle signed his autograph for me, the shape, um, the shape. <laughs> yeah, th that's, that's the way that, um, they refer to him in the movies is the shape. They don't, they don't even call him Michael Myers. And so, um, I think that, I think for me, that's the way I reconcile it. And if you look, I'm going to be talking about Prince of Darkness on my, um, podcast this week with Nathan and, and, and Carter. And that's one thing I'm going to be driving home is that like evil is like an alien, literally an alien concept in that, in that movie. And I think that's a consistent thing that you see in John Carpenter's cinema is a, a rejection of original sin in, in a lot of ways. It's, it's a, it's a weird secular form of Pelagianism, I think. <laughs> I know he's an atheist. What is his religious background? Um, that's a good question. I don't know that he had one. He was, you know, born in Carthage, New York, but grew up in Kentucky, um, for most of his life. And, uh, so I don't know if his family was religious at all, but I mean, there's, yeah, there's not much of a, a signal of religion. He doesn't treat religious institutions badly though, in nope. his movies in general, right? I mean, he certainly didn't in the fog. I mean, yeah. And, and I mentioned this in our, they live episode, the church is actually the the house of the rebellion in they live right of the of the righteous rebellion uh, of enlightenment in that movie the, it's it's out of a little episcopalian african episcopalian methodist church um and then um and then um and also in the fog we talked about in in um, Prince of Darkness, there's a, a priest played by Donald Pleasance who is a virtuous person. So he doesn't like. It, it, I know that he. I, I I suspect that at least that he's an atheist, but uh, he's not like aggressively. He's not one of these simple-minded ones <laughs> who sort no. of just like trash trash religious people for no reason. No, I, I was just I was just wondering if he had had some sort of Orthodox Christian um, upbringing that he is rejecting in formulating that uh, Pelagian vision of evil. Yeah, I, it's a good question. I don't know. Uh, and I'm using that term very metaphorically, I think. I, I, don't, I wouldn't make a, I wouldn't publish an academic arg article uh, making that claim, right? But I think as a kind of metaphor for his ideas about sin is, I, I don't, I mean, he, he doesn't, tip, even his movies don't typically have a character who's like a bully who deserves it. I mean, Christine does. Okay. So the movie Christine is a good example of, of an exception here. Yeah. Uh, but Christine is a, is a Stephen King property more than a yes. carpenter property, right? Or at least as much as it's a carpenter property. Yeah. They're like, yeah. In that movie, there are like characters who are evil on their own without the benefit, without, you know, anything causing it. Right. A very Stephen King. You're right. Um, and, and, but most of his movies, you don't see that kind of like, evil bully character right um who gets what they deserve like there are most of the evil figures in this movie are, are in his movies are people who are kind of corrupted from something outside of their control um um village of the dam his uh, remake of village of the damned is a really example good example of this the the, the manifestation of those children are it's alien um Immaculate conceptions, right? And uh, so, yeah, it's it's a really he's he's got a very complicated uh, idea of like evil, and I, I think it's worth considering. Yeah, I am afraid I won't have much to add to that since I haven't seen um, I haven't seen any of the movies. Yeah.
but that's i mean that that's interesting because certainly i mean this is a movie about capital e evil right yeah definitely yeah and the fact that the scientist like rejects scientific explanations and and buys into basically a religious explanation for for um uh, michael myers uh, and unsuccessfully tries to get everyone to listen to him for the entire movie i have to say donald pleasance cracks me up in this role i love his character my kids loved him they loved how he like screamed at everybody and yeah and he's just a display. he's as unhinged as michael myers <laughs> he really is yeah um like he's so funny he's always whipping out his gun and everything and he's halloween too has that terrible twist about the brother and sister thing it's actually a pretty good movie too and uh and 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 he's actually even more dr loomis in that movie than he is in in halloween and uh no he's uh he's fantastic in this movie and the one name actor in the movie at the time jamie lee curtis of course went on to become an icon right but uh and she credits john carpenter in this movie for that success right she um she's very grateful to him and very affectionate towards him because of that but um donald pleasance gave it a little bit of uh i don't know uh authority i mean he's a very famous actor already by the time he's in halloween and he's the only person in the movie who seems like a professional actor that's that's for sure like the the kind of stiltedness of some of the line readings in this movie contributes again to that that kind of eerie quality of the movie it's not quite right and it works because it's a horror movie and it needs to feel not quite right yeah and his accent is always indecipherable to me it's like is it like english or is it like old world new england (laughs) it's like you know there's like there's a really strange accent i I know that he's english right but uh but uh but yeah it's so yeah there is a really weird kind of in-betweenness to his character as well um and and i just uh i think he's fantastic um and he actually i think I read this somewhere that the reason he agreed to be in the movie um, was that his daughter had watched Assault on Precinct 13, um, one of John Carpenter's earlier movies, um, which is, again, in like an urban uh, Western kind of. It's not even close to a horror film. Um, but And she really thought that the soundtrack was awesome and that he should do the movie. <laughs> because why, of the soundtrack? And that's why, because, yeah, she was afraid. She was a fan of John Carpenter's music, right? Uh, so he did it basically because his daughter thought the soundtrack was rocking, right? And so, so, <laughs> and so it was really, really cool. So, yeah. I get assault on precinct 13 confused with the taking of Pelham one, two, three. <laughs> I, can I have seen the taking of Pelham one, two, three. I have not seen assault on precinct 13. No, it's great. Um, it, it's, I, I honestly, I've gone back and watched all of Carpenter's movies except Starman. I haven't rewatched that one since I was a kid. Um, but I think I've rewatched everything else and they all hold up. I mean, even the ones that are terribly reviewed, I, even the Chevy Chase movie is actually pretty good. Um, memoirs. Wait, he made of a Chevy Chase movie. It, it's called Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Um, I remember that movie. Yeah, it, it. I remember watching it when I was a kid and just kind of forgetting about it. And I rewatched it, and it's actually pretty good. Chevy Chase is doesn't carry his weight. I would say. <laughs> I would say in that in that movie. Uh, but uh, but the movie itself, I think, is fantastic. And Sam Neill is amazing in it. And uh, yeah, so I, uh, I he's. Really, I, I don't know that you could find a actually bad movie that he's made. You'll even go to bat for uh, Escape from L.A.? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a fun movie. I mean, and Ghosts from Mars, right, it is um, to all, everybody thought oh, it's really campy. And, like, that was the intention is to be – it's an iced tea movie, right? Or, <laughs> and so it's definitely – it's, of course, uh, campy. It's um, Ice Cube. Ice damn. Cube, I'm sorry. <laughs> I got the wrong ice. <laughs> At least I didn't say vanilla ice, right? And so, um, yeah, it's Ice Cube. So, but it's it's a, a hilarious, campy movie, um, and I'll, actually kind of interesting too. I tried to get the Book of Nature guys to look at that one to talk about environmental issues because I think that's a really interesting uh, uh, environmental mer- uh, you know metaphor. So, so yeah, I've been on all these shows being an apologist for john carpenter <laughs> it's uh, certainly you make me want to watch more of these movies i have i have avoided them because i've been afraid of halloween and now i'm not afraid of halloween anymore so yeah. uh maybe it's time for me to check out some i've never even seen big trouble in little china 
that that's a delightful movie. Uh, I I think that movie is so much fun and and really interesting too. Kurt Russell is hilarious in it, and and it's I think it's subversive because Kurt Russell's in on this joke too. It's like this is a character who in most Hollywood movies is like the hero of the movie, right? And he thinks of himself as the hero of the movie when in reality he's the sidekick, but he acts like the hero sort of. And, and it's, so it's like a parody of that kind of like uh, white savior sort of movie. And, uh, and I think it's a brilliant film and, and fun and, uh, and, and weird and inventive. Just a, the plot like you've never seen. It's like, how did they even come up with this story? Uh, it, it's a really, really interesting movie. Did he write that one in addition to? I believe so. I believe he wrote that. Um, often he'll write movies and he'll on the screen it'll have like a pseudonym as the uh, as the writer. So like Prince of Darkness, he Martin Quatermass is the uh, is the writer, but it's John Carpenter. And They Live has a different name too, um, but he wrote They Live, and I think I'm pretty sure he wrote um, Big Trouble in Little China too. Huh. And he he's written other movies too. Like Eyes of Laura Mars is a movie he wrote um, that didn't he didn't direct. Um, Black Moon Rising with Tommy Lee Jones um, is was one of his too. And uh, I just find I I don't know I know that sounds ridiculous that John Carpenter is somebody's favorite artist, but uh, I I just find myself relating to him in so many ways. I, I not only do I find the movies good and the ideas interesting, but just sort of his attitude like insider outsider attitude towards the industry. Um, I just find like interesting and laudable. Like he, that, that is something you would certainly appreciate. In yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Right. And, and he like was offered to direct fatal attraction and like, doesn't just cause he's not into it. Right. And, and like movies like that, like that he could have like, he could have been like a Hollywood A-lister, right? But he always chose to just be on the margins of things and and just to do his own thing. And and uh, and he sort of took the hits critically. But honestly, in retrospect, I mean, his movies have been reconsidered and 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 widely lauded. There was the moment in the summer when Jordan Peele um, really kind of uh, did. You hear about the Jordan Peele story? I didn't. Uh, no. Yeah, somebody when Nope came out, which is great, by the way. Um, someone went on Twitter and, and said that he's already the greatest horror filmmaker of all time and that nobody else has even made th- uh, three horror movies in a career and he's made three in a row. It's just like a ridiculous statement, right? <laughs> but that's what a dumb thing to say. <laughs> and Jordan Peele says, I appreciate your enthusiasm, but I will not tolerate any John Carpenter slander. Right. And so, uh, so he's sort of like, um, I think really is taking part of this wide critical reappraisal of John Carpenter's films. Well, uh, Danny, thank you for coming on and uh, teaching me all about Halloween. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I, um, like I said, I'm a little embarrassed about my enthusiasm for this. Material. I don't think you should be. I don't think you should be embarrassed at all. I think uh, I think our listeners are going to enjoy the next uh, three episodes that you're in, and then the one after that that you're not in. Um, and, and again, uh, all week the shows of the Christian Humanist Radio Network will be talking about. Um, we'll be talking about the films of John Carpenter. So make sure you subscribe to Book of Nature, Sectarian Review, Christian Feminist Podcast, and City of Man. Art? Yeah. yeah, go and, ahead. And a lot of these right now are on, like, I know Peacock and Hulu um, this month. So if you want to catch up on some of these movies, you can uh, do, do so if you have those services. Our next episode is going to be on an album called No Time for Enemies by some sort of musical group called Gangsta Grass. Now, this is a Nathan Gilmore chosen episode. <laughs> no doubt. I was like, when I heard this, like, that's got to be a Nathan one, right? <laughs> it seems to me that Gangsta Grass is a hybrid hip hop bluegrass combo. So I haven't listened to this yet. Uh, I suppose I better get down to it because I know... Nathan uh, is going to make me talk about what things sound like because that's what I make him do when we do music episodes. So uh, it very much sounds like something Nathan Gilmore would be into. So our listeners, I, I don't, you know, I think it'll be two weeks probably where it's hard for us to schedule now that um, Grubbs and I are both teaching high school. But uh, we'll be back at some point with that. And in the meantime, you can listen to the many other shows on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. You can find our 
show notes for this and our other episodes at christianhumanist.org. We're on Castos now. I think that's probably actually the easiest way to go back and listen to old episodes if you're having trouble is through castos.com. But I've never used it except as a podcaster, so I'm not sure exactly how that works. I love that platform. It's so much better. Oh, gosh. I can't believe how long we did it the other way, Danny. It's so I really much can't. better. It's so much better. I feel like I, I had no idea it could be easy. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's just like user-friendly from the listener point of view to find what you're looking for. It's the, definitely yeah. user-friendly from the producer point of view. Like I don't have to, I don't have to add album art to the MP3s before I upload them. We didn't have like the album art for before they were live wasn't showing up on podcatchers for the entire life of the show. And now it is because it's so much <laughs> easier to use uh Casta. So anyway, um, I know that some of our listeners have had trouble finding older episodes, but I think they should all be up on Casta. And if they're not, you can send us an email at the Christian humanist at radio uh, at gmail.com excuse me, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. For Danny Anderson, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.